Hello from our Liverpool office and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Sam Myers, Investment Director, and I'm here talking with Ben Seager-Scott, Tilney's Chief Investment Strategist, reflecting on UK and global markets following the ripples caused by domestic and overseas current affairs. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or a recommendation and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carrying varying levels of risk depending on their geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. So Ben, uh, the final quarter of 2018 was certainly a difficult one for investors and I know that you've discussed the reasons behind this in previous podcasts. Thankfully, the trend didn't continue into 2019 and we've made back some of the lost ground during the first two months of the year. So what's been behind this improvement? Well, thanks, Sam. I think we, we covered the reasons for the downturn and actually a lot of the, the reasons for the subsequent rally were embedded in that. We focus very much when we look at equities on the fundamentals on earnings in particular for for equities. Uh, And actually, not a lot have fundamentally changed. It was a big movement in valuation driven by sentiment. And historically, not always a certainty, but one does tend to see valuation-led falls subsequently have have quite a, a strong recovery. Like I said, not always the case, but as we looked at it, particularly when valuations go from being above uh, expectations historically so expensive to cheap. That's normally uh, a good buy signal. And a few factors have changed. Some of it will just be realisation that markets were oversold. Uh, I think we talked last time that thin trading volume that sometimes typifies the Christmas period balancing out. Uh, and actually, the movements, whilst we expected them, have actually been probably sharper uh, than, than many may have anticipated, probably ourselves included, to be honest. But as well as just that realisation that sentiment perhaps shouldn't be as negative as it has been, I think there have been reasons to be positive. It's all too easy when markets are falling to think they'll fall forever, just as when they're rising. One might think they'll rise together. Uh, John Bogle quote there, the the late Vanguard founder. I can't remember if we mentioned that last time. We may have done. Um, But it is very important. And I think in the middle of all of those undulations, it's easy to get caught up. And I think... Perhaps markets underestimated what can be done to remedy that situation, particularly around monetary policy. We've seen a big change in stance from major central banks, whereas last year we were talking a little bit around tightening of policy, maybe making it restrictive. Central banks arguably have come to the rescue and given out a very clear message that monetary policy will remain supportive. Other factors as well, some elements from China also some potential resolution to the US-China trade uh, dispute. All of these reasons, I think, have added to some of the positivity and really supported the equity rally. You've touched a little bit on valuations there, and and we felt that it was a fairly attractive entry point at the beginning of the year with the very attractive valuations. And and given the the uplift that we have had, where does that leave us now? I still think the outlook for equities is positive. If anything, the, the very cheap valuations added 
more positive sense uh, to the equity position. But actually, as we stand today, if you assume perhaps that that short move has, as arguably, been realised, maybe you'll see the markets pause for breath. But the outlook for equity growth is still positive overall. Uh, actually, we, we published recently, in fact, every month, our pulse piece. And if you look at the pulse piece for February, our chief investment officer, Chris Godding, goes into a few more details uh, around this. But ultimately, what drives equities, as we said, the fundamentals are earnings. And if you look at earnings growth, whilst some of the estimates have moderated, I think that puts them at a more sensible and sustainable level. At the same time, you've got fiscal stimulus, particularly from the US and China, and also monetary stimulus. All three of these, these three tenets of our investment philosophy really are positive for equity. So yes, you might say if you were looking on a short-term trading basis, if you were buying the dips, you might have had some of that benefit. But on a more strategic uh, outlook, equity still fundamentally are attractive and could still grow uh, throughout this year. Not to say they won't be volatile. Uh, A lot of the, the low volatility we've had for the last couple of years, as we covered a couple of podcasts ago, is now a thing of the past. So even though this we, we do have a positive outlook, there's not to say there'll be highs and lows within that. So volatility will be there, but the fundamentals for equities, I still think looks relatively attractive. So potential to buy the dips, but maybe from this level, looking at earnings and dividends to, to make up the returns for the balance yeah. of the year. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of good portfolio management, that's what, uh, depending on, on which services our, our clients uh, follow. And obviously, you, of course, investment director, your your bread and butter around rebouncing when assets rise a little bit more than you expect, taking some profit, uh, topping up on the bottom. You really can add a lot of value through that portfolio management. So I think those those types of activities that happens in, in most of our services, as well as that general rising trend, I think will will benefit clients this year. Okay, um, you've you've touched a little bit on the uh, on the Fed's sort of more more dovish outlook for for policy, and it's clearly been supportive for markets so far this year. Um, and you've also admitted previously to being a bit of a geek when it comes to studying the minutes and the and the nuance in the wording. So, do you want to talk us a little bit through how expectations have changed for U.S. interest rates? Absolutely. Uh, as I said at the the top, definitely a lot more dovish. But actually, when, when you look in the minutes, we've, we've talked about what Mario Draghi has said. If you think back to last year, the US Federal Reserve was actually starting to get a little bit worried. They were talking about maybe increasing interest rates to a level that they might be restrictive. And all of that is now effectively done. I think what was interesting going into the March Federal Reserve meeting, um, actually, interest rate hikes and Federal Reserve meetings are normally incredibly dull affairs. The markets are normally well aware of what the Fed's going to do. Interesting in the run-up, lots of will they, won't they? But the central banks generally like markets to be broadly on board with what they're going to do. So typically, going into a meeting, you might have a probability of 80 or 90% of a hike or, or a cut. Going into December... Actually, it was a lot more finely balanced. It was more of the order of 50 or 60% likelihood of a hike. That's very finely balanced for an interest rate call. And the reason for that is that the Federal Reserve has been very clear with its forward guidance, this idea of a steady, gradual increase, an almost predictable um, timeline for when those rates would increase. But as we moved through Q4, it became increasingly clear there was a bit of a, a global downturn, 
potentially temporary, but some of the data turned a little bit sour. You had concerns over the US and China trade war, problems ongoing in Europe. And there was a sense maybe it's the, it's the time to pause. And I think the Fed really had to battle with this. The economic data are starting to turn versus the credibility of if I've said I'm going to stick to this uh, steady gradual increase. If I don't, then that might harm my credibility. And our thesis was always what they would end up doing is hike because that maintains that that sort of forward guidance, but then move very quickly to what they they call um, data-driven decision-making. So if you're the Federal Reserve, you're either give guidance that suggests I'm going to sort of increase on this kind of timeline, or you say I'm data-dependent, you don't know what I'm going to do, I might hike, I might cut. Not quite as extreme as that, but making it a lot more, the, the outlook a lot less certain. And that's broadly where they've gone, uh, much more dovish in, in their output, their ec- own expectations for the path for interest rates softened. Uh, but also importantly, the market has now turned very much against the Fed. A lot of the, the um, speeches that Federal Reserve members have given have become softer. The market was going from expecting right, rates to, to steadily increase over the next few years. Actually, look at it at the moment. The market expects no changes at all. And actually, there's a greater probability of an interest rate cut than there is of an increase. And that's really an about face from the Fed. Similarly, in other parts of the world, uh, the European Central Bank unlikely now to hike throughout this year. Uh, there is a, a slightly more nuanced case potentially for the UK. The challenge the UK has, the Bank of England has all but said interest rates would be 75%, sorry, 75 basis points higher today were it not for Brexit. So if Brexit wasn't an issue, interest rates would probably be 1.5%. As it stands now, the expectations for a hike softened, but as we go through the politics, as a soft Brexit becomes more likely, you've actually seen uh, the the likelihood of increase starts to tick up at the end of the year. Still very supportive. We'd still expect the central bank to remain relatively loose in its monetary policy. But aside from from the Bank of England globally, uh, central banks have really scaled back from this tightening policy uh, to much more pause and potentially even leave the door open for a cut if it's necessary. And I think, interestingly, if you, you know, talk about being a geek, if you look at yield curves, that is the interest rates on, on different bonds, there's now, it's not an inversion, but the curve is now kinked. So if you buy a one-year US uh, government bond, it's yielding uh, higher than if you buy a two, three, or five-year bond. And that implies, what we said earlier, that implies the market thinks potentially the Fed's overdone it. They might be forced to retreat only very gently in the next couple of years. It's not a full inversion. It's not these these doomsday recession indicators, but it does make life a little bit more difficult if you're the Federal Reserve. Okay, well, we did manage to get just to the last point without mentioning the B word, Um, but Brexit is the main thing that my clients ask me about, and it obviously dominates the domestic news agenda. We've seen defections from both sides of the house towards the independent group um, in the last week or two. And it's clearly focused the minds of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, who've both changed tack this week. Um, We've seen Sterling rally on the back of it, which would suggest that markets are pricing in a softer Brexit, something you've just alluded to. What's your take on on the latest Brexit developments? Absolutely. It, It keeps on giving, as I think we've talked about before, 
We don't want to get too drawn into investment strategy. In fact, there's very little investment strategy you can do with, with much of politics. As always, we have broadly diversified portfolios that mitigate the impact of any one um, geopolitical or political event, even though it might dominate the news here. Of course, there are developments that are, are relevant. You've highlighted them there, particularly this defection to the independent group. Uh, and if, as, as they're known, the Tiggers, their policy is not amazingly clear. Uh, obviously, they are a designed to be a more centrist party. They are ostensibly a, a pro-Remain party. But actually, the, the genesis of the group has a lot to do with their own internal party uh, politics as well. Trouble with the leaders, trouble with, with changes of, of the structure. And that makes the group a little difficult. They're not a, a sort of single party. Let's rally around rejoining uh, or, or staying in Europe. They have lots of, of different factors. So it, it's not entirely clear where their, their political power and what their key values will be or how it will grow. But as you highlighted, the effect it has had is to push the leaders of both Labour and Conservatives uh, to slightly more softer policies, arguably to keep some of their own members uh, in uh, within the parties. The impact has been a softer outlook for Brexit. That in turn has led, as you rightly say, to an increase in sterling. So as we stand now, the possible outcomes are all relatively soft overall. Um, not to say that the own, their own parties don't have problems, not to say there aren't other challenges that will come out, but we are in you know, the last month till the run-up. So there's not a huge amount more wiggle room left to have. Uh, I think the, the most important things, arguably it could always have been their political calculus, particularly from the Prime Minister. So now she has this ability uh, to, to go forward with her deal. Uh, and she said she's going to then offer, if her deal's rejected, offer a no deal. And if that's rejected, offer to uh, extend Article 50. And that's really the softening of the government's approach arguably a, a tactic all along what that in effect does. The problem we have is there is no majority for any one resolution. There is an apparent majority uh, against no deal. The problem, of course, is that no deal is the default if you don't have any sort of idea or, or deal to, to deal with it. Um, and that's the problem the government currently has. And I believe the political thinking, particularly from the Prime Minister, much as everyone very famously rejected and thoroughly hate the deal, unfortunately, she's put together, it is the only deal currently on the table. And the thinking is Eurosceptics, knowing that a no deal vote wouldn't get through, uh, they, the, the, the calculus is they'll find Theresa May's deal more appealing than uh, an extension to Article 50. And that's really the calculus that, that's running through. Um, and of course, on the Labour side, the agreement now that Labour will back a second referendum, also a sort of softer Brexit. So it's unclear what's going to happen. There is no majority or probability for any one outcome, but most of the, the cards on the table uh, are now more towards softer Brexit. That is not to say that a no-deal Brexit can't happen. The sense now is it if it does happen, it's probably going to be more by accident than by design. But there's so much going on in Westminster, you can't discount it entirely. It's now a, a fairly outside chance. I think the remaining sticking points that still need to be resolved, even with, hypothetically, let's say, well, if we have the Prime Minister's deal, we effectively know what we're getting, get on with that, assuming no deal doesn't get through. The extension in and of itself is not the panacea that many think it is. Firstly, all it means is we have to deal with all of this further down the line. Also worth highlighting, we can't demand an extension. 
actually all the vote would do is force the Prime Minister to request an extension. And then there's even going to be negotiation over what that extension is. And within that, there's a whole nother um, debate to be had. Is it going to be short term? Is it long term? It's very clear uh, the EU will not want this to interfere with the upcoming European parliamentary elections in May. So maybe a short technical extension just to get some elements pushed through. Alternatively, they might insist or put forward a much longer Brexit uh, delay of maybe up to two years. Uh, The calculus being a lot can change in two years. And I think that's the element that particularly horrifies some of the most Eurosceptic elements. So even within the, if it goes to extension uh, line of, of thought, Within that, still lots of questions to be had. And then even on the Labour side, it is worth highlighting, as, as a few have, yes, Labour have agreed to uh, a second referendum, but Jeremy Corbyn has been very evasive on what exactly would be asked. And whilst many people infer that that referendum would include a Remain option, he hasn't explicitly stated that as of yet, but then a week is a long time in politics. So still all to play for, but it looks like more of a a soft Brexit uh, environment. So the only certainty continues to be a degree of uncertainty on the Brexit front, but perhaps some of the uh, some of the fog will clear over the next uh, over the next few weeks. So I think we've covered a lot of the main points there. um, And we're just getting to the end of this podcast. But I think before we sign off, uh, perhaps if we could bring everything that we've said together, and if you could maybe take us on a whistle-stop tour of the globe and maybe summarise our our sort of key views on on the main regions that we're equity investors in? Yes, absolutely. So going around the world very, very very broadly, and I'm probably going to do some disservices, particularly to emerging markets. It's a small allocation, but obviously uh, covers a huge number of individual countries. Um, Starting in the UK, valuations are still attractive and earnings growth is coming through. It is very much unloved on a global basis. While all this uncertainty persists, global investors just choosing, why do I need to invest there? Lots of other global options. So I think that's helping drive valuations to attractive levels. And if we do have a resolution, a lot of this pent-up demand we've talked about previously, both in terms of consumers and businesses, could be released and provide a short-term stimulus. And on the back of that, we also have a relatively positive consumer. There is a nuance on that. Again, I'd refer listeners to the Pulse piece. House prices starting to cool in in London. Don't want to make it a London-centric issue, but there is a point where central banks and governments want to maintain price stability because of these wealth uh, wealth effects. Something I'm very sensitive to because I've just bought a rather expensive house just outside London. So knowing we might be at the top of the the property uh, property prices is, is not particularly positive. Um, but it does have a discernible wealth effect. So really interesting to see how those play out over over the coming months and years. Um, more on that, of course, in, in the, the Pulse piece. But that's UK. Valuation's attractive, potential for a Brexit relief type of boost. Europe, the outlook, I think, continues to deteriorate. The economic data are not positive. Uh, even the, the both the, the contemporary measures, so elements such as industrial production, not great. And even the forward-looking business measures are pointing to a more challenged outlook. And the risk is the downturn the rest of the globe has had through this year really become entrenched. And we're starting to see that in the data as well as their own political problems. The challenges of uh, monetary policy union while they have fiscal disunion really coming coming home to roost. What that effectively means, you have the Northern European countries that are doing very well. Inflation is starting to pick up. So normally you'd increase interest rates, 
But if you do that, you cause a huge amount of pain for the southern European countries. So it becomes a, a political problem, but very difficult to run effective uh, monetary policy in that sort of environment. And of course, they also have the risk of a potential trade spat with the US. Just as things are cooling between the US and China, there's this ongoing discussion as whether or not uh, the US would look to impose tariffs on European cars. So how that plays out uh, still needs to be seen, but lots of problems facing Europe. So I think uh, a little bit more caution warranted there. And then in the US, growth is continuing, but so are valuations looking a little bit expensive. The theme we've had for many years, the risk of complacency. Uh, Still reasons to be positive, of course, wage growth coming through, fiscal stimulus still in effect. uh, And as we said earlier, monetary policy a lot more supportive. But valuations reflecting that and potentially a little bit more. So that does make us um, not cautious on, on the economy and fundamentals, but a little bit wary of where valuations are, particularly given they, they had a very aggressive rebound and a back to their sort of typical expensive selves overall. Uh, and then emerging markets and Asia Pacific. Positive on valuation looks very attractive overall. Large and love they've suffered uh, over suffered over the last year or so. They would benefit from a weakening dollar, and, and our outlook, admittedly, as, as as with many others, the the dollar looks structurally expensive at the moment. Lots of reasons to see some of that strength potentially come back a little bit. Not calling for a large devaluation of the dollar, but potentially coming off some of the elevated levels. And a weak dollar is good for these uh, emerging markets. The resolution of the China and US trade uh, trade spat as well would be disproportionately positive, I think, for these regions, definitely benefiting more. They've had a lot of negative news priced in that would alleviate should we have some sort of resolution. Um, You can't get away from China as effectively the the anchor economy for the emerging markets. It is still having a a continued slowdown. Some of the data are, are looking not particularly attractive. But as we've said before, the Chinese authorities have a l- many different tools they can use to stimulate the economy. We're seeing that monetary policy stimulus, fiscal stimulus, a bit more direct stimulus now. So almost coming full circle to the start of the podcast. Even though China has these challenges, we shouldn't underestimate their ability to deploy their tools to, to genu- generate short-term stimulus, which in turn I think would be good for assets across emerging markets. It's a very inter- interconnected re- uh, region. So, so hopefully that, that covers, in, in a nutshell, our views of the world. Okay. Thanks very much, Ben, for your comments. Um, we'll be back again next month with a new episode, hopefully with a bit more clarity around Brexit by that point. Um, if you've got any feedback, questions or comments, uh, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening.